0: Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 102nd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we thought, what better way to kick off the year than with a conversation recapping the movement, or in some cases, the lack thereof, on the policy front in 2023, while highlighting what's to potentially come throughout the year that is 2024. This conversation will hopefully be a good barometer of where we can anticipate seeing many advocates spend their time in 2024 as we look to accelerate the transition to cleaner technologies at the Utilities Commission and legislature. But before that conversation, one quick update. All right, one last reminder. Coming up on January 31st, NCSEA is hosting our annual continuing legal education event, Clean Energy in North Carolina. For attorneys listening in, this is a great opportunity to earn your required CLE hours and learn about the latest policy and regulatory happenings in North Carolina. For all others, this is a great way to stay on top of the latest in the clean energy ecosystem in the state while also having a chance to hear from sitting utility commissioners on the ever popular View from the Bench panel. To find out more information about the event and to register, visit energync.org and check out our events page. And now, on to the show. Hey. Energy. Woo. Queen,
1: queen, queen, queen. Energy. Hey.
0: Today, we're actually going to be joined by a whole team of experts the policy team at the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, who will dive in deep to all things at the Commission and General Assembly and what's to come in 2024. Our first guest brings years of experience in government affairs and is currently the Director of Policy at NCSEA. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Cassie Gavin to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Cassie, welcome to the pod.
2: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Our next guest joins us with a plethora of renewable energy and community solar experience from his own organization, Good Solar, prior to joining NCSEA. And he is now NCSEA's regulatory counsel, Ethan Blumenthal. Ethan, welcome to the show. Glad
1: to be here. Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Next up is NCSEA's newest member of the team, but not new to legal work or clean energy, coming from Sierra Club previously. Please welcome on Justin Somolovsky, Regulatory Counsel at NCSEA. Justin, welcome on.
3: Thanks, Matt. Long-time listener, first-time caller.
0: And last, but certainly not least, is someone who serves as the voice of NCSEA down at the legislature with years of his own experience working in the building prior to NCSEA. Please welcome our Government Affairs Manager, Michael Farrington. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Look forward to uh, reviewing this one.
0: And I provided a very brief introduction to each of our guests today. But each of them has a very rich history of policy and clean energy experience. So I'd encourage you to check out more information and their bios on NCSEA's staff page on our website. All right, so let's jump right on into what's in store for 2024. And actually, first, before we do that, let's recap what happened in 2023. So Cassie, when you look back, last year, how would you summarize the year in clean energy policy in the state of North Carolina?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question, Matt. 2023 was a exciting year full of big economic announcements related to clean energy and clean transportation in North Carolina. And we saw major federal funding allocated for clean energy and clean transportation that will benefit the state too. So lots of good news there. But at the same time, we faced a difficult political climate for moving forward, bold clean energy policy, like we would like to see, such as for broadening options and savings for customers. So for example, NCSEA supports updating policies on rooftop solar leasing, community solar, competition in energy markets, which all saw some support at a bipartisan level, but also also ran into roadblocks. So we had to play defense on certain policy issues, like energy codes for new homes, fees on electric vehicles, Overall, I'd say 2023 was a mixed bag on state energy policy, but overall, I'm optimistic because there's an overwhelming trend towards a carbon-free electricity future, and North Carolina stands to benefit a lot from that, both in jobs and cleaner air, so we have a lot to benefit from. We're a state with amazing universities and workers who are ready to work in clean energy and transportation, so I think we have a good clean energy future in front of us.
0: That I'm excited about. Cassie, I love your optimistic take on the state of clean energy policy in North Carolina. Some others might not have that same perspective. We we definitely ran into a number of, of roadblocks at the legislature and, and elsewhere last year. I mean, as you alluded to, we did have we did have some some significant wins. We also saw some significant economic development wins. We have a lot of opportunities ahead of us and we'll talk about that. In just a minute, related to things like the carbon plan proceedings, but I'd love to dive in a little bit more to the legislative side of things with with our government affairs manager, Michael Farrington, to talk about what, Michael, you saw as, as some of our biggest wins at the legislature in 2023 and, and some of our biggest drawbacks. What opportunities do you foresee going into the short session this year at the legislature in, in 2024 as well?
4: Thanks for that question, Matt. Our biggest wins, you know, you heard heard Cassie mention our great university system and a lot of the federal dollars. You know, we had twenty six point three million dollars allocated for matching funds spread across the biennium, which is, you know, just a, a great win for for clean energy in the state, as well as fifteen more million dollars for the NC Collaboratory for academic research and partnerships. So again, just a big focus on education and business, as well as over two million dollars in university projects and, and university energy centers. So I mean, it's Funding, 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 right? A lot of this research doesn't get done here in the state without without all that funding. So those are big wins that we were happy to be a part of. Also, I was really happy that we did get some reasonable solar decommissioning requirements. This is something that's been a big fear for utility-scale solar and, and its proponents across the state for a while, that there weren't specific markers on the books for, for what had to be done. And although it was typically handled through contracts and it wasn't a, a big concern for landowners, there was still a regulatory concern there. And so, you know, we were able to get a bill that we were really, really happy with at the end of the day, thanks to a lot of our partnerships and, and a lot of hard work. As far as, you know, some of the issues with this past year, we've, we've got powerful opposition, right? So it's it's important to, to do our best and build big, big coalitions and, and focus on what we're doing to help businesses and individuals across the state and, and saving dollars. Saving dollars makes sense, right? And so building codes was a, was a big hit this year. And also an, another big hit was we, we had a bill filed that would increase the solar leasing cap, filed in the House, passed the House with only 10 no votes, didn't get heard in the Senate, got put into a another bill that was from the Senate on the House side, passed with flying colors again through the House. And was was ripped out again when it made its way back to the senate and that's just that's that's free market type stuff i mean we're trying to to expand the energy market here we're trying to expand what businesses can do and what options they have so i'd love to see that opportunity continue to move forward because i do think that there's room for that to happen so that that's a, a one big piece another big piece of an opportunity going forward to me would be you know we, like i said we've got some some good friends and we're seeing leadership step up And so I do think that there's room for for more solar, less restrictions on solar. You know, another big piece came thanks to the Utilities Commission increasing the uh, megawatt cap from one to five. So I think that that hopefully we'll continue to see that positive trend like Cassie was talking about.
0: Michael, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question and put you on the hot seat here. So you talked about solar leasing, which garnered a lot of attention last legislative session without much success at the end we we felt like it was on a, a clear path to success towards the beginning given the pathway for helping customers on their own journey to install solar providing additional financing options making solar more cost affordable for more customers across the state and one of the arguments that we heard at the legislature was that there wasn't it wasn't necessary to expand the leasing cap as we hadn't already hit the current leasing cap of, of 1%. I'm really curious as to why we were hearing this argument and maybe why that may not be the case and what the justification should be for expanding the leasing cap beyond 1% if we had not yet hit that leasing cap.
4: Great, I'm, I'm glad to be asked that question, Matt, because the, the cap is just that an arbitrary cap that was set up in previous legislation We're the only state that has a solar lease cap of this kind. And so if you were a business and and you participated in solar leasing, why would you come to North Carolina to do business? There's 49 other states that you can go to and and not worry about this cap and do business as as long as you've got businesses there that are willing to participate. If you come to North Carolina and let's say that NCSEA had 50 offices across the state, you know, let's pretend that, that somehow we hit that cap. Well, we would be told that we were no longer allowed to lease any additional solar and the business that provided it to us would be told that there was also no more business here for them to do. So why would you why would you start up that system and, and set up all the logistics to make it happen when when you're already facing such a small cap to begin with? I think that, that letting the market do what it wants to do is, is the best way to, to make things happen and and not not having these small caps.
0: So what I'm hearing is that it makes it really difficult to invest in a business model to scale and grow if there are artificial caps established on it, which, you know, is, is some of the reasoning why we had not yet hit that current cap here in the in the state, but yet is consistently one of the the biggest challenges that we're hearing about from companies outside of the state and some of our existing solar installers here within the state.
4: And I think it's important to note that this cap causes for extra regulatory burden on the seller as well and the buyer. You know, if this cap wasn't here, there's a lot less that goes into it at the commission. It'd look a lot more like purchasing a system than it does currently. So I think that you'd be able to get rid of some of that regulatory burden as well as making a a more sensible business model.
0: All right. Well, at risk of, of spending an entire podcast episode on solar leasing, which we could do. So we'll, we'll revisit that for a future episode. I want to make sure that we spend some time talking about what's been going on at the Utilities Commission. So with that, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and go over to Ethan to ask you, Ethan, what you foresee as some of the big ticket items on the agenda this year at the North Carolina Utilities Commission.
1: Thanks, Matt. As many of you all know, energy has been a a big ticket before our utility commission for quite a while now and will likely continue to be. So we have quite a few potential dockets that are likely to take up a lot of the commission's time. The first one, the big one, is the carbon plan and the integrated resource plan, the CPIRP docket. Last go-round, the 2022 go-round, it was just the carbon plan we have now merged that with our integrated resource planning process. So it is now a CPIRP here in North Carolina. They are one in the same. Duke filed their initial plans back in August and testimony early September about how they plan to operate their system for the next 30 so years. Interveners initially had until the end of February. I say initially because the process is thrown up in the air right now. I think I think we'll be discussing this a little bit more, so I'm not going to go too too deep on all of this right now. But just wanted to flag that there, there are some question marks about when some of the deadlines will be for this, though we can be sure that the CPIRP will dominate a lot of the commission's time for much of this year. Some of the other really prominent dockets that we have Holding over from 2023, we have some customer program dockets. The Clean Energy Impact Program and the Green Source Advantage Choice Program are both before the commission. Those lasted most of last year and continue to be before the commission now. We also have a review of the Energy Efficiency and Demand Side Management cost recovery mechanism. That is how Duke Energy recovers the costs. And is also incentivized for doing more energy efficiency and demand side management, EE and DSM programming. So that's very important as those incentives are meant to put such programs on an equal footing as the utility making an investment in generation capacities, which they obviously earn an investment on with their regular utility business model. So we're looking to try to incentivize the utility to do more of these programs. And then this is the this is the cost recovery piece, but that will then dictate a lot of the programs that we actually see come out of this down the road and potentially for quite some time. A couple other dockets that will be big. We saw Duke Energy file plans for a new combined cycle methane facility that they are seeking to build here in North Carolina. They have also filed a letter, they haven't filed the actual plans, though we anticipate them shortly, for a new combustion turbine methane facility as well. So they're looking for a certificate of public convenience and necessity. That's what we call it here in North Carolina. That's the specific proceedings that we will be seeing going on on that front. There's also the biennial avoided cost proceeding that is just getting up and going. That really is looking, examining at how solar is compensated in North Carolina. It's a pretty large docket. It's about a lot more than just avoided cost. It's almost a misnomer at this point. So we'll be digging into some of the details and seeing how some of that's calculated and, and some of the specifics around there to make sure that that is helping our market adjust as new technologies are available and as technologies improve. Finally, I want to mention that we were involved last year and and will most definitely be involved this year with the continued efforts of the Carolina Transmission Planning Collaborative. Transmission is a huge issue here in North Carolina as it is across most of the country. And there are specific areas that are really areas that are very congested that are leading to a lot of interconnection backlogs. And pose a real risk for North Carolina meeting our clean energy goals in a timely fashion. So we plan to continue to really engage with this two-state, that's why it's the Carolinas, Transmission Collaborative, looking at both the Duke Energy Progress and Duke Energy Carolina's balancing authorities and how we can better plan for transmission to integrate renewables faster. With that, I think there's there's plenty more at the commission. There always is, but I think that's plenty for you to get going.
0: Yeah, thanks for that that overview, Ethan. And, and we'll circle back on a couple of those items with you here in just a moment. But the, the first one that you brought up, which is the elephant in the room for 2024, the 2024 iteration of the carbon plan proceeding. So I'd like to dig in just a little bit more on that. So, Justin, where do we currently stand in those proceedings? What's set to come up next, and where does NCSEA currently stand on the proposal that's already been submitted by Duke in front of the commission?
3: Thanks, Matt, and thank you, Ethan, for setting the stage for the Carbon Plan IRP. As discussed last summer, Duke Energy Progress and Duke Energy Carolinas filed their Carbon Plan Integrated Resource Plans, where they put forward several resource portfolios mapping out their future generation mix. And from our perspective, it is regrettable that only one of those portfolios achieves House Bill 951's target of 70% emission reductions by 2005 levels by 2030. And that portfolio that Duke put forth that actually achieves the interim target is described as prohibitively expensive and does not follow by HB 951's least cost mandate in how they develop their resource planning. Additionally, Duke's preferred portfolio, meaning the portfolio that the companies would like the commission to approve and accept and allow Duke to start working towards, does not achieve that emissions reduction target until 2035. And it does so by relying heavily on technologies that are not as scaled and are from NCSEA's perspective, less proven and more technologically speculative. Those technologies I'm referring to tend to be small modular reactors, which is a advanced nuclear technology and the ability to retrofit some combined cycle gas plants to blend hydrogen fuel. Now, certainly both those resources can and likely will be part of the solution for the ultimate 2050 goal in HB 951 for North Carolina's generational mix to be carbon neutral. But under the current timeline, and as Duke proposes, those relying so heavily on those resources add some unnecessary risk to our electric grid system. So we will be looking to do some alternative modeling with our allies and put forth alternative portfolios that looks to achieve the carbon emission reduction targets more aggressively, still aligned with the least cost mandate, but also does not add this risk based on the proposals put forth by Duke. Where do we stand now? As Ethan mentioned, Duke has introduced some uncertainty into the process because on November 30th of this past year, they issued a supplemental set of testimony notifying interveners that they will be updating their load forecast, which adds approximately four gigawatts of demand to the system. we feel like it is highly appropriate for Duke to notify us of this change in circumstances, because it's going to affect how we produce our electrical system and how we regulate it over the long term. But there is some uncertainty. We are recording this on January 17th. As of right now, the commission has not issued an order on the procedural schedule and to what extent they will allow Duke's supplemental modeling. So while we wait for that order, we can only speculate that The additional load will require more generational resources and we hope to see that it would have a proportional amount of added energy efficiency to reduce the need for that capacity. But at the same time, we're hoping to see in Duke supplemental modeling coming out later this month, a vision to decarbonize our grid and not just revert to the mean and revert how the system has been operating throughout its entirety, just to achieve this additional load. And by that, I just simply mean we would like to see more renewables, a more diverse generation mix, instead of trying to meet this challenge with the safe options of more gas and more fossil fuel emitting generation plants. So that, that is where we stand right now. We're looking forward to the commission order to outline our process and map out how we will be spending most of our time this upcoming year.
0: All right, Justin, I'm also going to put you on the hot seat here. To ask this in in layman's terms, especially given Duke's filing last year in, in only one of their proposed scenarios actually achieving the statutorily mandated carbon emissions reduction goals by 2030, asking us in very plain language here, is it technically and financially feasible for us to actually achieve the 70% carbon emissions reductions by 2030 here in the state?
3: I'll start with the easy question. Technologically, yes, I do believe it is feasible. The price of solar and the price of wind has dropped significantly. The price of battery storage, particularly lithium ion batteries, which complements those variable resources. And I know you asked for Lyman terms. So resources that don't generate electricity 100% of the time, battery can help boost the efficiency and efficacy of wind and solar. All those are experiencing significant price drops. So they can be implemented at a greater rate than they would have been five years ago, just given the market dynamics. Where I think we fall into uncertainty right now is how much will this increased load due to economic development in the state require additional generation and additional capacity beyond what has been proposed by Duke in uh, their initial filings? I think trying to meet that challenge is going to create more resources. And then I think the question is, do we view the law as saying we need to meet our decarbonization goals in the least cost possible, meaning the lowest amount of dollars to do so? Or do we need to find a way to do it in the least cost possible as is practicable? So let's find a way to accelerate this process and do it in a manner that does not break the bank, but does not just sort of defeat the spirit of the law that was put forth in HB 951. So I I think technologically, we are there. I think in terms of the scale and scope, it is to be determined based on what we learned in Duke supplemental filing.
0: Thanks, Justin. Thanks for letting me put you on the hot seat there. You know, I'll, I'll point out, right, that technologically, it is very possible, especially when you look at North Carolina as compared to other states across the country. I won't draw any direct comparisons, but if you look at North Carolina's solar growth over the next five years as outlined and projected by the Solar Energy Industries Association recent report, which shows that North Carolina is slated to be 25th out of all 50 states in solar growth in the country, whereas we've had... A number of other states rapidly, rapidly accelerate their deployment of solar to the point where they've far exceeded North Carolina's capacity and are going to continue to accelerate on that trajectory over the next couple of years. I mean, we've seen in other states it's technologically feasible, especially given the fact that now, given, you know, number of, of studies out there that continue to showcase solar as the the lowest cost form of energy available to us on the grid, it's, it's about unlocking that regulatory certainty for those technologies like solar, like offshore wind, which we didn't talk too much about. But I know if folks are really interested in, in digging into that topic some more, we did a, a podcast episode right after Duke's filing last fall, in which we outlined what Duke is planning for for offshore wind moving forward. So we'll, we'll definitely dive in more to this after NCSEA makes its filings coming up in the next couple of months. So So I don't want to take us too far down the rabbit hole of the carbon plan, because again, we can spend another entire episode on this. So I want to circle back to Ethan related to customer programs. And Ethan, you mentioned the green source advantage choice program and the existing green source advantage program, and, and just quite frankly, a lack of other programs available to larger customers here in the state. So, Is this the year that we see some new program offerings available through proceedings like rapid prototyping or other dockets? And what's the latest on GSA?
1: Thanks for that question, Matt. It's, I think the quick answer is yes. The bigger question is what those actual programs look like. So, First, I'll start with the rapid prototyping before getting into some of those details. I already touched on the EEDSM cost recovery mechanism piece earlier in our conversation. That is progressing. The comments for that are due at the end of this month with reply by the end of March. There's a real hope that the commission will act on that in a timely manner so that Duke can integrate these changes such that they are ready to go in 2025. So we're really hoping that that process will be wrapped up. It includes a rapid prototyping process for programs that fit within our EEDSM cost recovery statute. We also, for those that don't fit within that, things like rate schedules or potentially charging schedules or things like that for EVs that would go through a non-EE DSM, rapid prototyping mechanism. We actually worked with Duke closely to put together a proposal and submitted that with the utility in last fall. So we were hoping that the commission acts on that shortly, and that will provide another avenue for some other potential new rate structures or the the kind of bigger universe of non DSM, it's all about cost recovery at that point for the utility. So those are two different rapid prototyping mechanisms. They're very similar. Hopefully, we will have both of them in place in the first half of this year to then really sink our teeth into. I also think as far as customer programs and, and the lack of large customer choice here, I think it's worthwhile taking a second, I know we're talking about North Carolina, But taking a quick little peek south south of the border here, I think there's some really interesting movement, particularly at the legislative level in South Carolina, that is very much worth watching, particularly as it comes to large customer choice and their access to renewables. As you know, we focus on North Carolina. I'm not going to get into the weeds. These things are just introduced. I'm not even sure their session is up and going yet. So, you know, I just wanted to tease that a little bit but for us here in North Carolina I think we are we're going to be watching that very closely on how that progresses to get back into the green source advantage side of things which is is a tangle of weeds sometimes but it it has been a process i will say the largest issue for NCSEA is this concept known as additionality and that is where If a customer were to participate in a program, they can be sure that through their participation, whatever resources that they are procuring will be above and beyond what is required by that utility. In a state like North Carolina, where we have a mandatory reduction mandate, that is often known as regulatory surplus, because the utility has to have a certain amount of carbon reduction as regulated And so what is surplus of that? Part of what we have been, I will say, going back and forth with the utility on for both the Clean Energy Impact Program as well as the Green Source Advantage Choice Programs that they have proposed is the lack of this additionality, the lack of this surplus. They All of these wrecks, all of these facilities would be sourced through the carbon plan procurement processes. And because of that, that means they go towards Duke's Duke meeting their carbon plan goals, meaning there's no surplus above those goals for for these customers. Really, what this boils down to is third party certification services cannot certify these programs, which a lot which means many different customers essentially cannot use them. Those customers that end up getting audited for their sustainability programming, they require a certain level of documentation. And as it stands, these programs would not provide that documentation, which means they could not actually participate in them. That could mean any number of different things, but for large customers that are really looking to invest in North Carolina, it could very well mean that their dollars go elsewhere and that is a real concern whether that is investment dollars in actual facilities or investment dollars specifically in renewable facilities that because they can't get it here in North Carolina they're going to go to a much less regulated state like say Texas or Illinois or or somewhere else where they can connect to the grid far more easily and they can and they can ensure that additionality is actually achieved so that is a real critical issue that we have been talking with utility on it is not an easy issue, I will say. But that's that's a critical piece of this, that designing a program that all large customers in North Carolina can use is a very important thing and and remains a big challenge and will continue to be a big challenge.
0: So Ethan, I want to briefly circle back on one of the part of the question that I asked you originally and, and part of the point that you were bringing up earlier. So for the uninitiated, can you just at a high level explain what rapid prototyping is and what that mechanism is at the commission for enabling future customer programs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first, I have to caveat this by what we have proposed to the commission. It They have not approved anything, so we don't know necessarily what we will be given, but These have been pretty widely agreed to by many, many different interveners. So we're hopeful they will be approved largely as submitted. By and large, it's saying that programs below a certain scale, whether that's monetary scale, how much they cost or how many people you're going to sign up or how many technological devices you're trying to put out there in the community, you're, you're, you're below a certain scale that is trying to achieve a certain research objective that objective has to be tied to carbon reduction but it also has to be tied to something beyond that that could be affordability for different programs that could be access to new clean energy technologies that could be grid congestion relief there's any number of different things that it could be targeting but that you know a peak peak load reduction all of these are kind of goals that it could be tiered to, but these programs are, it's meant to be written, you know, to be widely applicable. So that way we can use them to apply to all of these new clean technologies that we see coming down the pipeline. So really the key here is that they're, they're tied to a cost size. They're tied to the amount of people. There's a temporal limitation. They should only last a couple of years before they either become a program or they are taken back for learning objectives. But at the end of the day, it's the ability for the utility with key stakeholder input to design and implement new bite-sized programs that hopefully can be rolled up into impactful, large-scale programs at a later date.
0: Thank you, Ethan. So step uh, step back from... From customer programs. I'm going to pose this question to, to everyone here. Another area of, of great need and opportunity moving forward are, are programs and incentives available to residential customers across the state. We spent some time talking about larger commercial customers. What can be done at the, the commission and the legislature to further expand residential customer behind the meter generation and energy efficiency? And what do you foresee taking place this year as a result of Programs like tariffed on bill being authorized at the commission last year.
1: I'm happy. I'm happy to go ahead and, and kick off some thoughts. And please, you know, everyone add some, add some color here. There are a number of different things. Thanks for first bringing up that tariffed on bill program. That is a major step in the right direction for clean technology access for re- at need and residential households here in North Carolina. It's a really it's a big program, it's a, it's a national step forward, and we really commend the utility for taking that step. Now, never rest on your laurels. We would love to see it expanded to solar. At this point, solar is excluded from our tariffed on-bill program. We would love to see either that program expanded or to have a parallel, a new program that works alongside that one. That would be fantastic. Uh, another similar sort of aspect there, we just saw a new residential solar and storage pilot program called PowerPair approved by the utility commission. This program was actually initiated by the commission itself last year in a ruling. And we worked with the utility along with other key stakeholders, developed a program that we all signed on to. And the commission just last week, I believe, approved this program. So It's that's a great step in the right direction. I will say when they approved this program or or said that we should go here, they also didn't approve a proposal for a standalone solar incentive that we had worked on with the utility. So we would like to revisit that. North Carolina for a long period of time had a state tax credit for solar. I don't I'll leave that to our legislative folks if we're ever going to see that again. But the utility commission does have it in their own hands to create at least some level of solar incentive. So we'd love to see, we love that we have this new solar and storage pilot. We'd love to see that individual incentive revisited at the very least, and and hopefully have something there as well. And then there may be some others here, but one other key piece that I wanted to just touch on was the streamlining of programs across North Carolina. So you have any number of pre-weatherization programs. You have the state energy office really leading the way on all of the suite of weatherization programs that have really been given a boost from the federal funding coming down the pipeline. And you of course have all of these utility run programs. some Streamlining the process for households to be able to participate in all of these programs, from one to another to another, or simultaneously as they may be able to, these these would this would be a massive step forward in the ability to maximize our ability to achieve all of these federal savings that are coming down. With that, I know there are there's a lot of different ways this could go, so I'll definitely take a step back.
0: I uh, you know, just to quickly follow up on on power pair really exciting news and, and we'll make sure to allocate some time on a future episode to talk about the details of, of that program if history is any indication i would i would venture to guess that that is going to be ultra popular similar to what we saw with the rebate program here in north carolina a couple of years ago and so i would i would challenge us to think about how do we get to a point in which we can get beyond this boom and bust cycle of customers signing up for residential solar every single year until we hit the cap of that pilot program to think about things that are longer term, more sustaining, like you were talking about, with some sort of solar incentive that's more ongoing. Because I know that's been a real challenge for the solar industry over the past six, seven years here in North Carolina, as a lot of folks within the industry allude to as the solar coaster which i think we're probably going to experience quite a bit of over the next couple of years as we see this sort of boom and bust with these different pilot programs until they reach their cap so exciting news for sure and i think something that's really going to provide a shot in the arm for for the residential solar industry and then pair that with potential funds coming from things like solar for all i think we've got a lot of upside available to us here behind the meter
3: One other area of great need and great opportunity that I would like to highlight actually comes from another win from 2023. Through the DEP rate case, there was an affordability settlement reached, and in that created a stakeholder group to address the customer assistance program, which is a direct credit program for qualified customers who also participate in LIHEAP and the crisis intervention program. But what is really exciting about this affordability stakeholder group is an opportunity to meet with the public staff, with Duke, with other stakeholders throughout the state on trying to unlock and identify customers that are in greater need of support and services within North Carolina. We are undergoing an energy transition, as discussed through the carbon plan, that gets it creates additional strain on people's utility bills. It is expensive. There will be additional capital costs flowing through the company's revenue requirement. By getting serious and discussing how to support people throughout this transition and identify whether a bill credit program is the ultimate solution or that the bill credit program is a tool to unlock an unlock other opportunities for customers that are more difficult to reach, that are not as engaged with their utility, that are more difficult to find to help with energy efficiency measures. I think that's a really exciting development for 2024, and that will be continuing over the next few years.
2: Yeah, great question, Matt. And you asked about what the legislature could possibly do to help residential customers invest in clean energy. So, you know, we talked about how in 2023, we saw the House pass the solar leasing bill, but the Senate did not. The Senate could take that up this year and pass it, and that would be something to help folks find a pathway to clean energy without significant upfront costs. There's also an option that the legislature could take another look at its community solar law that was passed in previous years and change that and update that to make it more workable so that folks who want to have solar but maybe can't have it on their roof can invest in community solar. Uh, like many other states are enjoying, and then as far as the utilities commission, you know, a reminder that the legislature sets the parameters for what the utilities commission can do. So the legislature could always step in and say that we need to have you know better and bigger customer programs for businesses that want to come to the state and invest in clean energy. That's entirely within the hands of the legislature potentially if they wish to do that. So I think there's ways that we can support companies that are interested in coming to North Carolina and doing economic development in a clean way. There's lots of options available for that that I think our leaders should be looking to.
1: Thanks for bringing up community solar, Cassie. I, I agree that that is an area that we hope to see some real movement here as well in 2024. In a couple before the commission, we are hoping a couple of different avenues for that might see some movement. The first. We talked about customer programs writ large. We know that Duke Energy has been planning to file a new shared solar, a large-scale community solar program where or where RECs would be sourced from large, probably 80-megawatt sort of facilities, but customers would have access to being able to participate in that program. That has not yet been filed. Uh, we believe that is due to the uncertainty regarding the other customer program dockets, but... As soon as that uncertainty is solved, we would expect to see that program moving forward. Here in North Carolina, we've been told to expect it to be largely based off of what Duke Energy is already operating down in Florida as a sneak peek. We are also working with allies to take another look at the House Bill 589, which was passed back in 2017, Community Solar Programme those facilities would be capped at five megawatts and would be much smaller sort of facility. Now that we have more federal incentives, costs are lower, administrative costs should hopefully be lower. We think it's time to take another peek at that and really see if we can get that program up and going as well. So for those households that rooftop solar will never make any sense Having some sort of community solar program to give them access to clean energy would be fantastic, and we are hopeful that we will see some movement on both fronts in 2024.
4: Yeah, all all great points, and and you know I, I really appreciate Cassie throwing in those couple of pieces at the legislature. One thing that, that's happening right now is there's a there's an HOA committee in the House up for an interim committee, and you know I think it's between. 30 and 40% of current North Carolina households have an HOA. 90% of all new households being built or new houses being built in North Carolina have an HOA. So there's a huge opportunity for the legislature to protect property rights and stop these, these over-demanding HOAs from, from telling you what you can and can't do with your rooftop. There are studies that show that rooftop solar increases home values. It, you know, and it also... Decreases your energy bill, so it's a it's a great incentive when you're when you're looking to buy a house. If if HOAs are so concerned about the the secondary market on these homes, you know this is something that the legislature has the power to stop and to protect personal property rights, and and so that would be a huge thing for residential solar. We had a bill that was similar to what I'm talking about in 2021. It was House Bill 842. If anyone wanted to to check it out, but you know that that committee's got the power to to do something about that, or at least to make a recommendation around it. So.
0: Thanks, Michael. So I want to wrap us up with some some high-level thoughts for 2024. So back to you, Cassie. At a, at a high level, what should folks be looking out for or expecting this year and beyond, especially with new leadership in the House and a new makeup at the commission?
2: Yeah, great question, Matt. I think we'll continue to see bipartisan support for economic development that is linked to clean energy and clean transportation, for sure. So, you know, as we see those jobs come into North Carolina and those businesses grow, I think over time that that will increase overall public support and political support for clean energy policies over time. How long that will take, we shall see. But I hope sooner that rather than later to see building political support for removing outdated policy barriers to clean energy that exist in state law and regulation. So I think that was, you know, important to see those barriers removed. Like we've talked about here, some today, the solar leasing cap, like a solar net metering size cap, we don't need those. And businesses are able to invest more easily when they don't have to face those regulatory burdens. And then, you know, this coming year, we will definitely see the utilities commission update the carbon plan, they will have to do that by the end of 2024. And so, you know, that'll change the big picture of, our energy pathway for North Carolina, no matter what it ends up doing, it'll set the path. So, you know, I would just say that the commission is, is responsible for regulating our monopoly utility for the benefit of the public. So I really hope that we'll see a carbon plan order that's bold and that requires the utility to reach its 2030 and 2050 carbon emission reduction goals that are set in law. So that's what I'm looking to see and hope to see from the Utilities Commission and the legislature over time.
0: One of the the big items on the the plate this year is also the fact that it's an election year. It's a big election year between federal and, and state elections. So how could that affect clean energy policy moving forward in the state?
2: Yeah, another great question. The reality is that 2024 is an election year, so that means it's a short session at the North Carolina General Assembly. So that's when legislators primarily just focused on budget adjustments and not on major policy. So I would not expect major energy policy to come up this year, the legislature, although we can always be surprised. 2025 is fair game for major energy policy, I would think. And then if we see voters make major changes in November that end up potentially eliminating the supermajority, and now there's, you know, there could just be a majority going forward, that may open up opportunities for bipartisan legislation and more cooperation and negotiation, which is usually good for clean energy. So I'm looking you know, to that as a potential for 2025. If voters elect a different party to be in the governorship, that could mean playing more defense on clean energy in 2025. But no matter what, I think we'll have to continue to defend against some unfavorable proposals in the clean energy realm. And we'll definitely keep working with clean energy champions that we know at the legislature and the executive branch to, you know, keep supporting common sense policy updates.
4: Yeah, I think that's a, a great synopsis, Cassie. You know, I see elections as opportunities, especially elections when we know that we're going to have a new governor, a new attorney general, and a new speaker of the house, as well as about 15 to 20 other legislators. These are kind of guaranteed turnovers based on retirements, based on term limits, and based on filing and, and running for uh, for new new offices. So we've got a speaker that's gonna be moving to, to Congress or looking to move to Congress. We've got, you know, so a lot of big changes coming up. So I, I also think that although we are losing some champions, we've got a great opportunity to educate and start from a, a solid base with, with these new elected officials. One of my, my favorite things about working at NCSEA is the tours that I get to go on and, and take legislators on as, as part of education. So. You know it it just gives me a good opportunity to to start that up again with with totally new members that have a a fresh mind coming into the general assembly or or any other part of state government really so i think it's exciting i think that also you know we've got poll numbers that show that clean energy is popular across the board it's popular with independents it's popular with republicans and it's popular with democrats and so i hope that everyone who's running is uh taking notice of, of what those poll numbers show and and you know building their platform accordingly and i hope that, that people vote for what matters to them when they when they get when they show up energy is not something you normally hear people talk about when they're they're talking about their main priority but it, it is something that you you use and pay for every single day so it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens no, no matter what
0: you're right it's it's definitely an issue that relates back to people's po- pocketbooks especially in the environment that we're in now, in which we saw rate case orders and, you know, fuel riders, right, approved by the the commission, that will be significantly increasing rates for customers over the next couple of years, right? So energy is going to continue to be a very prevalent issue overall moving forward. So with that, I want to thank each of you for all of the great work that you are doing to advance clean energy related policy issues at the commission and at the legislature on behalf of North Carolinians and on behalf of our members, I so appreciate as as a colleague, all of the great work that you are doing. And I know mem- many of our members do as well. So thank you each for for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Matt. Enjoyed it.
3: Yes, this was a real pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it.
0: And as you heard, we definitely experienced our fair share of challenges at the legislature last year. But there is still a decent bit to celebrate. As we look to 2024, it's an opportunity to regroup and set our sights on some of the most important items to advance across the finish line, including accelerating clean energy deployment through the carbon plan proceedings, finding more opportunities for customer clean energy programs, And protecting the rights of homeowners against prohibitive HOA covenants to ensure they have the right to install solar. If you're listening in and feel like there are some real challenges in need of policy solutions, please do reach out to the NCSEA team anytime to share your thoughts. It's incredibly important to the work we do here in the state of North Carolina. All right, and that's all for today's episode. Have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered? send me a note at mattable at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more can be found at energync.org forward slash the squeaky clean energy podcast. And episode 102 of the squeaky clean energy podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the podcast on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.